So um, we're in 1 Corinthians 1, and the first issue that Paul is dealing with is divisions in the church. So we're actually at verse 13, but I'm going to go ahead and read 10 through 13 just to bring us back up to speed. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. We talked about that agree there is not just conformity to a, like a, a rote standard, but actual people embracing the one truth that you, that you would agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you, you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. We talked about all of these are good leaders. Obviously, Christ is a good leader. Uh, But Paul and Apollos and Peter are all uh, stalwarts of the church. And, uh, but they all have their different emphasis and um, different personalities, and uh, the people began to, to actually make divisions in the church based upon uh, which of these men that they followed. So then in verse 13, we're going to get at what is the foundation of Christian unity? Um, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? So he, he, by three questions there, he gives us the basis, or at least three different uh, uh, reasons why Christians are united. So what are the three reasons that they give there as they ask those questions? So the second one, second one is, is that Jesus' crucifixion unites us, right? There's only one death by which anyone is saved, therefore Jesus' crucifixion unites us. What's another one? Yeah, so, (laughs) well, that's why I'm asking you this question rather than just giving it to you. So how would you word that? He says, is Christ divided? Um, So what would then be the... the, uh, you know, how could we reword that? I'm asking you guys to think that through, but you're, that's very important. So, yeah, so, um, so the impossibility, it's impossible for Christ to be divided. So I I might word this as the church has, I never say this wrong, the church has one head, right? I mean, there's only one Lord of the church. There's only one king. So if, if you're like saying there's two churches, if you're dividing the church, then you're basically saying you can divide Christ, right? And he says it's impossible to divide Christ. There's only one Christ, and he is the head of one church. By the way, this is why we, as Reformed Covenantal Presbyterians, 
believe that the Old Testament church, Israel, is not a separate entity from the New Testament church, Christ, because, because they're all under one head. Christ is the head of, of them both. So that's why there's one plan of salvation. There's not one plan for Israel, another plan for the church, because they're all founded in Christ. I'll actually make that point today in the sermon. So that's, that's one. Jesus' crucifixion, there's only one crucifixion, and in order to be united to the head, you've got to believe in the one crucifixion, right? So if you're either trusting in Christ in his crucifixion and have Jesus as your head, or you don't, right? There, there can't be like two separate entities going on here, all right? And what's the third one? <clears throat> it's interesting you say one gospel. I, didn't, I don't see the word gospel there, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one faith, right? So one faith, that's in another place, or, or in that sense would be doctrine. And that's what he is basically saying when he tells them all that they have to agree with one another, that there's only one doctrine. So if you start distorting the doctrine of who Christ is, you start changing who he is in his death and his resurrection, it's not even Christ. They might say they're believing in Christ, but they so distorted the doctrines of Christ that it's not Christ, Right? So that, but that's not necessarily here. What's the third? Who, somebody said it already. Sacraments, and particularly baptism. There's only one baptism. Now, I believe he's talking about, uh, well, I mean, you could take it both ways. You could say, is he talking about spirit baptism, or is he talking about water baptism? Um, and, you know, you can have your arguments any way you want, but the, the water baptism is the outward sign of the spirit baptism. So in this essence, it, it's a mute point. <laughs> there's one baptism. <laughs> he could have said there's one spirit. He says there's one baptism. I lean that is actually the sacraments that are being viewed here. There's only one baptism. So you don't have a Presbyterian baptism and a Baptist baptism. You have one baptism into the one name of Jesus Christ. And that baptism is there to unite us. <clears throat> so this is why we, we as a elders, if you are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are very reticent to not take somebody else's baptism from another denomination. It's, it's happened. I mean, there's sometimes we have rejected a baptism uh, and had the, someone get rebaptized. Someone right over here, right? Uh, Brad uh, was baptized into the Catholic Church, uh, which Catholic Church is always the big tweener because they have distorted justification by faith alone. We really believe that they have distorted that. But there are some true Christians in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church historically is really our father, too. I mean, we, we come out of that, right? So, so the baptism of the Catholic Church is always, every session in presbyteries uh, has to decide, are you going to rebaptize this person, or are you going to accept their baptism? So in, in Brad's case, he says, my baptism meant nothing. It was basically just a rote thing that I did. And so we baptized you, you know. But there have been other people that have come to this church that 
that had a really evangelical testimony of faith in Christ, and they were baptized as Catholics, and they were uh, not called to be rebaptized. But that's that's a that's kind of a divisive how do you, judgment call. But like when I came here and I was baptized Lutheran as a kid, I wasn't told to be rebaptized, right? It's just one baptism, and that's what unites us. So if you're baptized into the name of Christ, into the Trinity, by and large, your, bap- your baptism is valid, and we accept that. Go ahead. The, the issue of baptism, though, the ritual baptism, the externals actually does divide the church in many respects. So wouldn't it be better to fall back on the spiritual? <clears throat> it's a great, okay, listen to his, I don't know if everybody heard that. Do we have the microphone? Because I want to make sure that that gets, hand that to Christian and he can pass it around. So he says, the external rite of baptism actually divides the church, uh, practically speaking. Practically speaking. So it wouldn't be better to fall back on, on uh, spirit baptism instead. <clears throat> and uh, you would think so. But that's not what Paul does here. And, and uh, it, he doesn't, that, that was actually happening. They were saying, I was baptized by Paul, or I was baptized by Apollos. You would expect him to maybe say, oh, but... That's irrelevant. The spirit baptism is what's important. That's not what he does. He's continuing to say that there's only one baptism. And then he's going to argue, you weren't baptized into the name of Paul or into the name of Apollos. You were baptized into one Christ. So he doesn't go that route. And I think this is one of the problems of at least the Christian churches I've, in my lifetime, is that we increasingly want to default back to the spiritual church, which no one can ever see. So like, as I look about you, all of you, I mean, I don't know if there's maybe a section, but I think everyone here has been baptized into the name of Christ. I don't know which of you have truly been spirit baptized. I'm looking out at you and I'm thinking, yeah, I see fruit of Christ in a lot of these people's lives, so that's, that's good. But it's hard to make any arguments on something you can't see. John, can I see if your heart's been born again? I might see the fruit of that, but is it not also true that you see a lot of negative fruit in people's lives as well? And how often in the church do we judge one another, whether they're true Christians, based upon our personal judgment? Oh, I don't think so-and-so's a Christian. Did you see what they did last Friday? They're not a Christian. Can you hear Paul getting into this argument here? No, he just says, look, there is one baptism. The church is one, and he's dealing with this. This is... I know, because I've done exactly what Ken said, I've wanted to default to the spirit baptism. That's what really unites us. And then you fall back into when you meet with someone and you somehow feel this spiritual connection with them. There's Christ. And that's true. There is a spiritual connection between those who really know Christ and those who don't know Christ. But even that's subjective. How do you base a unity of the whole church on a subjective judgment of who's in Christ and who's not in Christ? Paul's making an objective argument here. If you are baptized into the name of Christ, then you are one. Now, does it mean we should still have one doctrine? Yes, because that's what Paul says. You should all agree on this one doctrine. You should should understand the apostolic teaching of the church, and this doctrine should bring, bring you more and more into agreement with one another. That's his hope. But at the baptism itself is a sign to everyone that Jesus only has one body. <clears throat> um, can, 
are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? I'm not disagreeing with that tendency because I, I feel that all the time. No, I, it's a question to you because of... <laughs> it's a question to you because, I mean, it, it, in one respect, you've got to ask that question. Because you do. You have it, and we see what divides us. And that's yes. why I was kind of curious your thought on that. So, so this is just me personally uh, spouting after 20 years, 25 years of ministry, is one of my frustrations as a pastor is that we don't accept um, baptism as the thing that unites us. So when we, here's the other sacrament right here, communion, right? When people come into our church visiting, Bob and Christy, you started visiting not too long ago, right? So when, you, when we come into this church, do we say, unless you are a member of Faith Presbyterian Church, you have no right to partake of this sacrament? Did anybody hear that when they first came into this church? What do we say? It's not Faith Presbyterian Church's sacrament. Who's the Lord of the table? Jesus Christ. And then we try to say, you, but you must be someone who has been baptized into the name of Christ. You have professed your faith openly. You are, you are, and we, I mean, we try to give like a wiggle of like a Bible-believing church, but like we can't go around and examine everybody's faith, you know, if they're coming in visiting the church because we want them to know that by and large, when somebody comes into this church, if they're already a communion member of another church, they should be able to take communion with us, period, okay? Because we want the sacrament to indicate that there's only one body of Christ, and it goes across the whole globe. Well, the same thing with baptism. One of my, one of my frustrations with my Baptist brothers is that we accept a, uh, a what we call a credo Baptist or a or a Anabaptist position of somebody who's just baptized as an adult, they get dunked. We accept that <laughs> as Presbyterians. We accept that as a baptism in the name of Christ. But if I, for some reason, had to go to a Baptist church, would I be accepted as a member of that church. Not until I get baptized, dunked, and actually profess my faith openly. I think that creates a problem. What they're basically saying is all of you who haven't been baptized as a credo Baptist are not really part of the church. And yet at the same time, they will tell me, I've got plenty of Baptist friends around the, the, uh, <clears throat> the county. They don't say, oh, Mike, you're not saved right? That creates a real problem, I think. The, 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 the sign, baptism, is to be an outward sign to the world that we are one in Christ. Then it's become the thing that has divided us. So my, my st- statement to re- Baptists that come into our church who don't want to baptize their children, I don't force them to do that. If they're not convinced of it by the word of God, I'm not going to tell them to do that, but they can still be a member of this church, right? And we actually still look at their kids as covenant children because we believe in covenant children. Uh, and, and until they're actually convinced of, biblically of covenant baptism, then they shouldn't baptize their kids, in my opinion. But we're, we still receive them as members of the church. So you see in how the, the sacrament ought to be something that unites us. 
uh, if you are baptized as a Mormon, okay, if you're baptized as a Mormon, we would reject that baptism. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, so because it's not a baptism in the name of the Christ as we know it, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal uh, in power and glory, um, we would not accept that because we think that the Mormon church is not a true church. So you don't accept that baptism. So when you choose to not accept someone's baptism, that is a big deal. Because baptism should be something that unites us. Now, I'm not, I haven't gained a little gr- much ground in winning my Baptist friends um, to this position. And that's okay, you know. But um, it does create a lot of crazy situations uh, where sometimes... Um, Sometimes someone who has had their child baptized and has gone into as a child and then gone into a Baptist church because they just had to in that area, um, the kids then feel this huge tension. Should they get rebaptized or not? And, and I've actually been encouraging at times. Hey, look, if that's where you are, I don't theologically believe it. I don't think you need to be rebaptized, but it doesn't do you any good to just dig in your heels and not be a m- member of that body. So I've, I've actually encouraged that at times. Uh, I didn't want to bring up names. <laughs> but yes, the popes are one example. Uh, uh, Debbie probably wouldn't be at mine. Josh Butler is an example of this. He, he was, has been in a, you know, a church for years, and he's, he's, that's where his family is. That's, he's hearing the word of God. He's a part of that church, and yet he was still kind of not a member of the church. And, and I, he came to me asking questions, and I actually said, okay, Josh, if you're going to be in that church... You know, it's kind of like uh, Paul saying, uh, if it's not a matter of the gospel, if, you, if you're not thinking, I need to get rebaptized to be saved, you just want to be a member of that church, I, go ahead. So. <laughs> yeah, right, because... T- He's willing to circumcise Timothy, whereas prior, when it's a matter of the gospel, he would not circumcise somebody. But then if it's just a matter of fitting in so he can be a better minister, he's willing to do that. So anyway, the point of all this is we need to rethink how... That's pretty good. Didn't even know I needed that. My wife probably thought I did, so... Um, If our baptism is something that divides us, we need to rethink how we think about baptism. That's my point. Uh, Yeah, we'll leave it there now. One of these days, we'll have a nice systematic theology on baptism. We're not going to do that today. I've already spent enough time on that. But here it is. Paul is saying, were you baptized into the name of Paul? So he, he has to be at least talking about the water baptism because um, that's, that was the point of their entry into the church. And so, anyway, there's only one baptism. Um, and that should, should unite everybody in the body of Christ. All right, let's read 14, 15, and 16. Uh, where's our mic? All right, would you give that to Emmy? Oh, okay, give that to Debbie. There you go. 14, 15, 
17 and 16. Yeah. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gassus. That's, yeah, close enough. Well. <laughs> they wouldn't have thought so. They would want to have the right. <laughs> sure. I call him Gaius, but that's all right. Okay. I don't know. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is Paul just, I've already talked about this, but <clears throat> so I don't want to go too much into this. Who is Crispus? Anybody know? Offhand? Some of you guys have notes in your Bibles, you might say. Who? Synagogue. That's exactly right. He was a ruler of the synagogue. That's from Acts 18.8. Uh, so, um, and he was one of the first converts uh, in Corinth. And so, you can imagine uh, Christmas is a big deal to them, particularly those people who are following, I would say, Cephas or Peter, kind of the Jewish sect within the church, um, that would have been a big deal, you know. Um, he also uh, baptized Gaius, and do we know who Gaius was? There is some question, right. Uh, Romans 16.3 says Gaius, and it may not be the exact same one, who is host to me and to the whole church greets you. So it's possible that he was a uh, kind of a, a leader in the church as well. <clears throat> Um, and then Stephanus, also from 1 Corinthians sixteen fifteen. I now urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So these all are names that would have meant something to them, not necessarily to us, right? We just hear their names. Um, you might say, like, uh, did you baptize Calvin? Did you baptize Spurgeon? Did you baptize Wesley? You know, those kind of, that would be a big deal, right, <clears throat> to baptize those guys. So, uh, question then, uh, from verse 17, why does Paul not baptize very often? <clears throat> He's called to preach, right? His specific calling is to preach. And particularly what we would call like a, an evangelist. Um, he's going into new areas and starting up the church. He wasn't going to be the ongoing pastor of any one church. Um, so he's, you know, he's a founder of the church, that kind of thing. He preaches the gospel, uh, but he doesn't do the baptism, and he also follows the pattern of Jesus <clears throat> because when Jesus was on the earth, he had his apostles do the baptisms as well. Jesus wasn't the one who did the baptisms. Uh, he had his apostles do that. <clears throat> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's the biggest one there, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, okay, let's see here. At the end, verse 17, he, how, how does Paul describe his preaching? How does he describe his preaching? Barry, what do you think there? 
Yeah, it's just, uh, I think, very, very simple, very basic. He talks about not wanting to empty empty the um, the cross of its power. So, you know, it's not eloquent or wordy, but just the basic truth. <laughs> yeah, not yeah, not necessarily charismatic in the terms of spiritual gifts, but like to be if it's if you think that it's up to you in your delivery to save people, you you God it. You wouldn't think it would empty God of it or hinder God. It doesn't hinder God. God could still save someone through that. But Paul's uh, point, I think, is that God loves to use the simple because it magnifies His power. Um, it's not just about the eloquence. There was something in that time called sophistry. Now, does anybody know what sophistry is? Uh, yes, but it, it's going to—it's a form of argument, kind of like what we think of philosophy. Um, but it's more than that. It's philosophy connected with rhetoric, which is the ability to persuade. So, think of some. <laughs> I'll just give one example. I'm not trying to. Just this is, but um, Bill Clinton, that boy could speak. He might be telling you the exact opposite of what you believe, but by the end of him speaking, you think, yeah, that makes pretty good sense. Okay. Actually, I also don't know if you were here or Melissa, but he came and stumped for his, uh, his wife uh, right uptown here in Morganton, and people couldn't believe I went to go see him because I'm conservative, but I wanted to hear the guy, you know. I stood there right on the corner and listened to him, and, um, and sure enough, I mean, he was just as good in, in person as he was on TV and stuff. That man, he just had, a, he had an eloquence. He had a way with words. Does that mean he's speaking what's true? <laughs> According to me, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I know. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily like what he had to say, but I, but I liked the way he said it. And sophistry was such that they believed that they could teach you the art of rhetoric in such a way that they could actually get you to believe anything they wanted you to believe. <laughs> Early advertising, okay. Um, that's, that's true. Advertising has this kind of a bent to it. Uh, these guys were the, the, the philosophers. And what Paul's saying is if the, if the church is grounded upon an individual's ability to be able to speak articulately, then that empties the church and the gospel of its power because God is reaching down and saving someone's life. Go ahead. In a course on evangelism that I took one time, this is, I'll never forget this. Um, It's not the cleverness of the sower, but the power of the seed. Oh, that is it. Do you guys hear that? It's not the cleverness of the sower, but the power of the seed. The Corinthians, they're living in a period where sophistry is everything. They're close to Athens. 
this idea of wisdom. And so they, they are basically saying, if you're baptized into the name of some great philosopher, you actually gain their wisdom from that. Does that make sense? It's like, it's like their wisdom becomes yours. Uh, and so there's this idea that you wanted to be a follower, a disciple of the most wise. And Paul's saying it doesn't work that way with the church. It just doesn't work that way. Now, Paul is not trying to be a bad speaker. He's not trying to make his logic, you know, bad and all over the place. You read his arguments. He's very logical. He's very thought through. He does use, you know, he's trying to be plain. The, my uh, preaching professor used to say, don't let the, uh, the messenger get in the way of the message. That's what he used to tell us. You can't, you can't improve on that seed. It's got power. But you don't want to actually become a hindrance because it's all about you and what you're saying. You, don't, you could, you could be, uh, do that with eloquence or you could do that with just trying to make someone boring. I, I think Presbyterians at, for a time used to try to make their sermons boring. There's no need to do that. That's not what we're trying to do. <laughs> so Paul doesn't do that. The writers in the New Testament don't do that. Um, he's just basically making the comment, that's not where the power lies. <clears throat> Think of our hymns. This is just, you know, that's why I love so many of our good gospel hymns. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. You see that? I mean, that's all about Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. I mean, these are, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Uh, Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. Jesus, keep me near the cross, there a precious fountain. These are all things that Paul could have said. It's not about some individual. It's not about something apart from just keep me near the cross. That's what we ought to be about. Um, So, questions or comments before I move on to the next section? I think it's interesting here, too, that he baptized the household of Stephanus. (laughs) It would be hard to believe there weren't any children being baptized. That's because you're a Presbyterian, you think that. <laughs> it's obviously they all believe. There's other places that say that they did believe. So I'm just, you know, playing devil's advocate. I, I actually do think that you have to make a relatively sophisticated argument to be on one side or the other on this issue. So that's one of the reasons why I don't expect everybody to just go, oh, that's easy, you know, because there's a lot of, challenging questions on both sides. And so um, you have to give people the time to wrestle with the word of God themselves so that they're trusting in the, in the word. If I can't uh, expound the, the, uh, the text in such a way that is convincing, then I don't want anybody to just believe it because I said it. So that's for sure. Okay, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
So why, Paul's making a very specific statement, everyone out there in the world thinks it's foolish to talk about the cross, why would the cross be foolishness to people? So this is not an answer that you'll get from the text, this is an answer you get from your own experience, right? So this is what I'm asking you guys, you got to give me some, why do people think that the cross is foolishness? Well, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the root cause, the spirit's not there awakening, but what reasons does a natural person, a natural mind that's not been converted, what are the reasons why the cross is foolishness to them? Okay, so the cross is a sign of weakness. So yeah, I'm a, you know, would, would we be, so say you're a, a military guy and you love military leaders, and you say, yeah, General Lee is my, my man. I'm going to look to him for how to work out military. You don't look to his, his work at the Battle of Gettysburg to say, that's my man. You look to where he's won all the other things, right? You don't say, I'm a follower of Lee, Lee based on his, his uh, uh, command at Gettysburg. No, because he lost that one. If that was Lee's only battle, you wouldn't go, oh, that's great. I'm going to follow him. Well, here's Christ. He's your leader, and what has he done? He's died. So it, it is a sign of weakness. Very good. Very good. What else? Okay. Okay, so it's barbaric. That's great. Great. We, especially in our world today, we, we've moved beyond that kind of stuff. We don't, blood sacrifices to be forgiven, to propitiate your sins. Are you crazy? You know, that's just barbaric, okay? What else? It's racist. Uh, give me how you say it's racist. I'll put it down. I don't know. Oh, it's Okay, right, yes. It's not all inclusive. It separates itself, right? It actually divides people who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. So in a way, it, it creates prejudices. Good. Okay, so um, you're, you're trusting in, in unseen things, okay? Not as tangible, okay? Yeah, I would add there, it's senseless. Senseless. What do you mean by senseless? Well, like stupid or uh, lacking in touch, touchable, like... It just doesn't make sense, some things. Uh, I saw an argument of someone saying, why should I obey God if an angel disobeyed, you know? Right. It seems like he's doing fine. Yeah. When you talk about hell and stuff like that. And yeah. So it's senseless. Okay, good. Yeah. You guys are doing really well. There's only one that I have on my chart that you haven't said yet. exposes neediness. So if the only way you can be saved is for Christ to die, then you can't save yourself. Is that kind of what you're saying, Susan, that you can't self-will yourself to salvation, um, which is good. Now, there's probably more, but I'm just going to give you one that I think is um, important. If the cross 
is the path to redemption. That means that in order for you to have redemption, you must die. Just think about that. So we're so used to thinking of substitution... Jesus died so I wouldn't have to, because he died so you wouldn't have to experience eternal hell. But we forget that we are united to Christ in his death. So if you want to be saved, you want to be with Christ, you have to die. And that's foolishness to people. <laughs> I mean, I got to live in this world. And Christians do live in this world, right? They have a life to live. We're not just go sit on a rock and, and do that. But, but life is about dying. Not just physical dying, but dying to sin, dying to self. That's what the cross teaches you. You want to come to Christ? It took his death to this world in order to free you from your slavery to sin in this world. That's foolishness to those who don't think themselves to be bad or they think this world is what they want, right? It's foolishness to think that way. One Lord, yeah. But see, that, that's, that's challenging enough, but then to say, I gotta follow the one Lord whose biggest act is to die, that's foolishness. You wanna follow somebody who's the smartest in the room. You wanna follow somebody who's the strongest, the wisest, the cleverest. That's who you wanna follow. You wanna follow a savior whose Lord and his one act is to die? That's foolishness. Folly. Notice in this uh, next, uh, or in verse 18, when he says, it is foolish, it's folly to those who are perishing. They're already perishing. It's not like to those who will perish one day. They're already in the process of perishing. And they're looking at you, their one hope, you know, looking, assuming you're presenting to them Christ, and they're looking at you and saying, that's just foolish. Even while they're going over the waterfall, crashing to their own destruction. <clears throat> now, uh, the end of verse 18, it is the power of God. Now, this is something that maybe I'm going to make a bigger deal out of it than what Paul was making. I hope not, but I'm glad Allison's here. 
she, she may remember this. So, I believe that the objective truths of the gospel are in themselves powerful. So, like, if I'm talking to Benji and I explain to him a, a coherent argument that Jesus' death is, a, is able to satisfy God's wrath and your sins will be entirely forgiven based upon Christ's one act of righteousness. I'm telling him all that, and it's a coherent thing such that his mind believes the objective truth. That is powerful in and of itself, just believing that truth, okay? But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. So in other words, I think that, like doctrines of Calvinism are powerful. <laughs> I think, that, you know, just all these doctrines are wonderful, they're powerful in and of themselves, and as you are convinced of them, it's powerful. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think Paul is talking about a powerful working of God. I think when he says that it's the power of God, it is God reaching down into Mary Dunn's heart and saying, awaken. That's the gospel. That because of Jesus' death, God is going to sovereignly work in people's hearts and awaken them to Christ. That's the power. And the reason why I think Allison is interesting, she probably does not remember this, but this I have a bad memory, but I just remember this. Way back in a VBS when you were like, this tall, uh, I was trying to teach this, this idea that God's word is powerful. So like in creation, when God says, let there be light, it's not just an objective statement that's made. His word is actually producing light, right? And so I said, this is something that only God possesses. No other human being can actually use their word and actually bring about something. And so I said, Allison, come on up here. And I said, Allison, I want you to say, yeah, uh, I don't know what it was. Um, let there be a new sun or something like that. I just, I just said, just say, and she says, let there be a new sun. And I said, nothing happened, did it? <laughs> Do you ever remember that? No, not at all. So it's something that, anyway, that's fine. Uh, but, it, but it is, it, it makes the point. When Jesus said to Lazarus, come out of the tomb, was he just speaking an objective truth to Lazarus? And then Lazarus just kind of said, oh, that makes sense. I'll get out. No, he was dead. And when Jesus said, let there be light, there was power, Right? So the power of the gospel is something that God does. And I think one of the challenges as a pastor over many years is do I believe that God saves? Because you know what? In a day where you see people walking away from the truth, you begin to wonder, is God actually saving people? Is he actually taking old, dead hearts and making them new? That's the question. And I think this may be the prevailing question of our day. The world no longer believes that God speaks into this world and saves. They do not believe it. The only question is, is whether the church is going to believe it or not. And Paul says, I believe this. The gospel is the power of God to awaken people out of their sins, to give them new life. That's what I believe. Now, does God do it in the way I want him to do it, as quickly or in this, you know? No, he doesn't do it. And we all struggle with wondering, are you really changing my life? That kind of attitude? You know, we struggle with all of that. But if we don't believe that the gospel is the power of God working, then we should close the doors as a church. Because there's no other reason why this church exists but to just proclaim Christ and to believe that he is changing hearts. And I have no idea what time it is because that clock is stopped. Is it right? It's 10.30? Okay, maybe it's not stopped.
I just saw people out there waiting. I thought I was way late, so. Okay, are you following this now? You understand what we mean by the power of God? What's another passage that speaks of the power of God? Romans 1.16. Very good. One of the things that challenges the church, this is just me talking, is what the Puritans called, um, what did they call it? Um, it'll come to me here. I'll just call it stubborn sin. Uh, you guys might remember. Clark, you remember other, what did they call this? These uh, besetting sins, that's the word, besetting And one of the things that actually challenges us as in the church, and one of the reasons why I think we sometimes people walk away from the faith after years of being in it, is because when you come to know Christ, you want him to forgive your sins, you feel really good about him forgiving your sins, and you feel this union of joy and stuff, but then you also are trusting Christ to change you. And then after like a few months, you're like, oh, not really changed yet. You know, at least not the way I would like to be changed. And you say, that's okay, that's okay. After 10 years? After 20 years? You know, yes, has God made changes in my life? Yes. But are there still besetting sins that just seem to not want to ever go away? Now, we, we have a theology of this. We believe that the old nature that has been crucified in Christ it's not really new, that there's a, there, there's a new nature that Christ has created, and then that nature wants to love God, and so there's this battle that goes on. But just even in this, you just think, God, if you're all-powerful, you put your spirit in my heart, I'm pleading with you to change me, why am I still struggling with pride or anger or whatever it is, right? Why is it still there? And some people just say the battle's too tough. I don't want to continually, over many years, keep struggling with my old nature and, you know, if Christ says he's going to change me, I should have been a lot better changed after this. I don't think the gospel is the power of God anymore. I'll just go on. Forget it. Or I'll change the gospel and turn it into something that doesn't change hearts. And that's not good. That's not the right gospel. So, so these kind of things affect us. And they challenge whether or not you're going to keep believing that the gospel is the power Brad, what do you think is going to happen when you see Jesus face to face to your sin? Will it still be there? At that moment, what's going to happen? Is, well, he, he's right. He's got, still got a sin right there at that moment. You're going to be clinging to Christ for his death on the cross to forgive you and cleanse you. But you know what he's going to do? In a twinkling of an eye, he is going to absolutely finish the process of your sanctification. And in that one moment, you will be absolutely glorified. And if anybody remembers Sandy Kerno, he always said that was his greatest joy of going to heaven, that the battle against his old nature would finally be gone. But you know what some people do? Because they didn't get it all fixed in this life or in the last 20 years, they'd said, ah, oh, forget Christ. He's not really the power of God. 
And that is, a, that is a tragedy. So you need to help people. The illustration I like to use is, if I told Leanne that I could teach her Spanish in one year's time, you will be fluent in Spanish. You always hear on the radio, take this course, listen to this, and in three short weeks, you'll be fluent in Spanish. It's the biggest lie in the world, right? So uh, I was one who did a, spent a lot of time studying Spanish, and I'm still not very good. But I tell Leanne, you will know Spanish in one year. You will be fluent. 11 months in, she is still struggling with her verb conjugations. What's she going to tell me? You're a liar. You didn't, you didn't, that's not the truth, right? So it's natural to not want to believe me. But if God tells you that if you trust in Jesus Christ, I will not only cleanse you from your sin, but I will actually make you righteous. Even if you're at the 11-month period, and you're not seeing everything you want, what should you say? I'm going to double down. This is going to be a glorious month, (laughs) right? And I think that's what it means to persevere in the faith. Now, of course, God is gracious, and he's kind enough that in many areas of our lives, he does give us relatively easy um, victories, you know? I mean, you guys are not the same people that you once were thankfully. And that's a good thing. But I think he gives us some of these besetting sins to humble us, to to test us, to see if we're going to continue believing. Those are the kind of things, right? Because we have to ask ourselves every day, is the gospel the power of God or is it not? All right, verse 19. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What do you guys think he's saying here? Oh, let's see. Go ahead, Debbie, yeah. The foolish that's kind of right I mean that's his um, <clears throat> yep, and where are they right now? We do see a lot of this right now. People think that they're wiser than God. And that's, that's played out primarily in how they view the word. Are they smarter than the word, or is the word smarter than them? <clears throat> Paul is quoting Isaiah 29 The Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Now, 
what is Isaiah saying in his day? What's the problem in Isaiah's day that he's criticizing? Okay, so it could be like syncretism, right? Um, Uh-huh. Uh, human power, human rules. Um, instead of encouraging people to truly draw near to God, Natalie, my purpose for you is that you would honestly offer your whole being to God. That's what I want. My purpose is not just to convince you of what I believe. Do you see how human religion is about what people are doing? Biblical religion is about God doing something, people's hearts being transformed such that they offer themselves to God, submitting their hearts to him. That's what true religion is. And the people in uh, Isaiah's day had turned it into a human religion. They didn't, they didn't, the rulers, the teachers didn't even care if people were offering their hearts to God. They just wanted to have wisdom and power and, and influence, and that's all they cared about. And God says, I'm going to take them down. And Paul just takes this Old Testament issue of human religion, human power, human rules, and he just says, crushes it. That's not, that, that is, so what I'm saying is Paul is taking an Old Testament situation and getting the understanding of what was going on there, and then he applies it to his New Testament context. And he says, religion that matters to God is all about truly offering yourself to God, trusting in him to do a powerful work in your life. Do we have a microphone to give to him? There you go. I said it's still relevant today because you have churches that are running based on human rules. Um, they're meeting the standards of the world so that they can look good in the world's eyes, but they're not meeting the standards of Scripture. They're not actually giving their life to God. They're trying to make the world's standards, and, and have God meet that. Mm -hmm. That's good. Now, if you remember my study in Isaiah, Isaiah is basically preaching a message, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. That's his message. And that went entirely against the conventional thinking of the day. God had made promises to protect Jerusalem. Um, it didn't make any sense to them that God would actually use another pagan nation to crush his own people. That made no sense. And yet that's precisely what God did. See how foolish that would be like? It'd be foolish. Why would God destroy his own people if they're his people? You know, and so, and, and Isaiah says, well, I'm doing it because, or God's going to do it because you're wicked and you won't offer yourselves to him. So I'm going to do this. So in this situation, God's superior wisdom ends up destroying the wisdom of the day. And that's similar to our day and age. People think that the powers of the world, the world's 
influence and it's all its wealth and all that's just going to keep on going and we're selling them no it's not it's all dying it's all perishing it's all and and they're going that's foolish and you think the church is going to be there you're crazy Mm. Yes, right. Who, and that's right. It's a stumbling block to Jews. Who could ever believe that the Messiah would be crucified? Foolish, right? <clears throat> who would have thought the Messiah should be someone who has the power to heal, the power to crush, the power to judge, the power to bless? But the one to be crucified, willing to die? Mm-hmm. But the way in which he saves is through his death. And there's, there's the rub. God is the genius, right? His wisdom is far above the wisdom of even church leaders who think otherwise. <clears throat> I said earlier that the power of the, the crucifixion is that we die, but the crucifixion's not all there is, right? You have the resurrection. And in most cases, Paul doesn't even talk about the power of the crucifixion. He talks about the power of the resurrection. So from a lot of places, you know, he's always talking about the resurrection, the resurrection. But in this particular case, because he knows these guys are so consumed with human uh, wisdom and power and, and strength, he just says, I'm going to focus on the crucifixion. But he's not separating the crucifixion from the resurrection. He's just making that the emphasis here. All right. We are at a stopping point. So what do you have in common with every other crucifixion? I mean, every other Christian? The crucifixion. God has died to, to free you from your eternal wrath, and he has joined you to himself, threw, him, threw you on his back, and took you to your own death. That's what you have in common with every other Christian. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for the church. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being smarter than us. Uh, your word is good. It's powerful. It's wiser than men's wisdom. And we thank you that you have devised such a a wonderful plan of redemption through death. In Jesus' name, amen.